Markets Panorama, a podcast by Monetaria. This is episode 22. We do have here a special video interview with Roberto More working for the European Union. The discussion will be focused around growth in Italy, European economics, the way Roberto invests on a personal basis. We'll also discuss some personal matters, which is going to be fun, you know, what Roberto does in his free time. Enjoy the chat. Remember that nothing here is financial advice. Well, it is my honor to have a, a guest who happens to be a great friend of mine and happens to work in the European Union as well. Roberto More. Robi, thank you for joining Markets Panorama. Thanks for having me. We, we, <laughs> we tend to speak in Italian between the two of us, but we'll keep it weird in English today. And uh, I, I will ask you, Roberto, if you want to introduce yourself, what has been your career in the past and what you're doing now for the European Union. Right. Well, first of all, again, thanks for having me, Nico. It's, it's a pleasure. And um, well, I, 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 am a, I was a lawyer. I, I specialize in, uh, in uh, competition law regulated industries. I worked for a couple of big uh, international firms for about 10 years in total. Then decided that uh, I wanted I guess to switch from the dark side of the force into playing Obi Wan or for sort of and being a public enforcer. So this is how at least I fooled myself with uh, at the time. So I joined the European Commission uh, DG competition where I where I did a bunch of uh, um, competition cases, competition law cases in the energy industry uh, for for about five years. And then somebody decided that uh, I was uh, I was quite a terrible quite terrible as a lawyer and so it was it was much safer for me and the others that I would pretend to be an economist um, something I strongly disagree with not not the assumption that the workaround uh, but uh, so a couple of years ago I joined the commission's task force that is handling the the IRF the recovery and resilience facility and um, I follow Italy um, the Italian plan that is worth uh, 191.5 billion euros until 2026 and um, I'm, I'm, I'm based in, in beautiful yet terrible Rome. Oh, now that I say this, former lawyer, now you technocrat, it sounds really boring. Um, and it, it's no surprise I'm wearing a, a blue tie and a U, U flag behind me and, and you look like Tony Stark. But okay, that's, uh, and I know you normally have a bottle of wines all around you. But so, uh, that, that's the way it is. That's beauty of entrepreneurship, I guess. Well, you are incredibly more professional and, and very good looking at the moment. So thank you for representing an institution in the right way. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's okay. So you, you, you live now in Rome. On, you work on behalf of the commission. And, uh, and in, in short, you are basically the person from Europe giving a check to Italy, right? To, to go ahead with specific plans. Right. That's the job of the task force. It's it's it's, it's a coincidence of you know for various reasons. I'm based in Rome because I'm also uh, the European Semester Officer here, along uh, with other two colleagues of mine. Uh, but there is a task force that is based in Brussels, and uh, and we're all part of the same group, and we follow uh, well, uh, the Italian desk, of course, follows Italy, and uh, particularly I'm, I'm I'm following the some of the big ticket reforms. Um, and that, that's the idea until 2026. You know that the plan is a combination of reforms and investments. Um, so, so far I've been following more the reforms, the public procurement reform, uh, the annual competition law, which, which is close to my heart, uh, given the previous job. And, um, and that's more or less what we do. We, we, every, 
Every time the, the country makes a payment request under the RRP, the Recovery and Resilience Plan, um, which happens more or less every six months, let's say at the end of June, at the end of December, more or less, um, we check that all the milestones and targets due to, to that semester uh, were actually achieved. And if they are, then we issue the payment. And Italy has already received, I think, 67 billion so far. And now there is a new, well, the third payment request is still pending for about uh, uh, 19 billion. So it, that gives you, and, and it's supposed to be decided very soon, um, that gives you the magnitude of, of, of the plan and, and why we, we work on, on you know, checking carefully that uh, all the, the, the objectives, the milestones and targets, as, as, as we call them, are actually achieved. Because once we, we, uh, we reach the same result, the government has, has, has reached, that is, everything is fine, then we issue the payment. So there is a bit of delay. In the meantime, of course, the government pays whatever works or, or investments they have, they have to make. So there is an exposure. And this is why you know people keep saying that the RRF, the recovery and resilience facilities, a performance-based instrument. It's not an expenditure instrument. It's not that you go there with a receipt and say, okay, this is what I spent, and now you give me the money back. It's it's really um, a very tight combination of of, of milestones and targets. Five hundred and twenty-seven, actually, in the case of Italy, in which one can be you know the justice reform, just to give you the, the idea of, of how it works. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an extremely ambitious plan. It's the biggest one in Europe in absolute terms, and um, and and this is why there has been uh, you know scrutiny not only by the Commission by the rest of Europe as well. Mm. Fantastic. Well, and, and let me ask you then: a, a third of of our listeners tend to be from Italy, and in the podcast we usually focus on big regions, which are the the US and Europe in terms of economics. But let me ask you, what is your point of view on the future of growth and in general economics in Italy going forward, if you have a point of view on numbers or, or the big picture view? Uh, okay, now here, I, I, consistently with my boring introduction and to be as tedious as I can, I need to make a disclaimer. Of course, I'm not, I'm, I'm speaking on a personal capacity. I don't represent the European Commission. I don't represent anybody. I don't represent even myself here. It's just... <laughs> It's just a friendly, friendly chat. Um, yeah, let's start with Italy. I mean, Italy, when it comes to economic performance, my, you know, it's 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 really the quintessential of mixed feelings because because you expect the worst uh, and then you you get some sometimes positive positive results. I mean, what we have is that um, basically Italy reached the the output level and and the real GDP level pre-pandemic um, already in mid 2022. And, uh, and kept growing the third quarter 2022, and then entered into a relatively bad uh, quarter, but not too bad, uh, and, uh, at the end of 2022. And uh, the most recent uh, news is that, um, I mean, as you might have seen, the Ministry for Economy issued the DEF, the Economic and Financial Document. Um, and, and there you also see some pretty good positive news because basically you have an upward revision of of the GDP uh, for for growth for um, for 2022. So it's 0.9 with unchanged scenario, probably one percent with a change in policy. But with the the news is that it's it's higher than projected last autumn, uh, which I think was 0 0.3. Uh, and then as a light downward revision uh, for 2024. Um, where you have 1.4% instead of, I think it was in the region of 1.9 or 2%. Uh, 
But I'll stop here. I mean, I mean if now everybody's screaming, oh, it's only 1.4%, 1.5%, whatever, in 2024. But if you look at Italy's performance over the past 20 years, 1.4 is amazingly high. I mean, I think it did well uh, to, the, to the same extent only once uh, in 20 years. So it's, it's, it's already amazing. But, uh, but OK, the good news is that 2022 would, uh, was, was, um, was uh, still um, a pretty good year, uh, despite everything, with 3.7% uh, uh, growth, um, which was worse than originally uh, forecasted uh, the previous year, but better than forecasted after the war started. And then, of course, the phenomenal 2021 with 7% growth. I mean, you, you should, should always remind that the, the rebound after the pandemic was just was really great. This is no surprise. The real GDP um, level went back to pre-pandemic uh, uh, scenario uh, relatively soon after after the end of COVID-19. So, I mean, the outlook is not is not too bad. Um, and and last thing, which is I think where the you know mixed feelings would start is the um, the debt to GDP ratio, which is the kind of things we always look at uh, in, in in Brussels. Uh, because the latest depth says um, that it's actually better than expected. For uh, for 2022, it was 144.4, uh, so it's 1.3 percent less uh, than expected, uh, which is good news. And and then it, it's on a downward, um, it's on a debt reduction path uh, for the forthcoming years uh, until I think 2025. It's going to be most likely less than 141. But but I'll, I'll stop here and say. I mean, it's good news that it's 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 been revised downwards, but it's still amazingly high uh, comparing to uh, the EU governance rules, where you should have sixty percent. Um, and uh, and then and and then so the reality check is, uh, you know, Italy has been more resilient than expected. It's going very well uh, comparing to what most you know of, of, of the other countries expected, but. But we, we need to be cautious. And um, even if you look at the deficit, as you know, the Eurostat has issued an opinion um, uh, according to which then Italy had to revise the uh, classification of the uh, tax credits for uh, private investment in energy efficiency. The super bonus, 110%, is the most famous one. Um, and as a result of that, our deficit is, I think, 8% for 2022. Um, which is high and again amazingly higher than the three percent of of the euros, um, and it doesn't really change. It doesn't affect the debt so much. It changes a little bit the de the deficit profile, um, the time the time profile with, with most likely the impact of the super bonus being front loaded to 2022, which is I mean good news, probably not, not too bad at least. Uh, uh, but the, the, the crucial point is that now everybody um, is, okay, uh, you know, super happy about, you know, the, the, the results of 2021, okay with 2022, a bit worried about 2023, and let's see about 2024. But uh, the, the most important point is that the general escape clause um, of the Stability and Growth Pact uh, will be deactivated at the end of this year. So as of January 2024, Italy will be in the spotlight again, um, as it used to be before the, the pandemic. So people will start screaming that the debt is too high. Um, and uh, so uh, I, was, I was trying to make sense out of all this mess. And and uh, and uh, I mean, if you look at what the analyst says, uh, or, or the big ads, or, or even the commissioners, uh, um, the rating companies, by the way, I think was the last one, but even the others, I mean, uh, 
uh, they said a lot of different things about Italy, and that's again because there is mixed feelings, but they all have one thing in common. That is that we all know that Italy, you know, Italy's cure or what Italy has always uh, put forward as the recipe to get out of all of this exposure is to increase growth. And what they say that, you know, in order for you to increase growth in the short term, you need to uh, um, you need to implement the recovery and resilience plan. All of them have this thing in common. And they say different things on, you know, how to address public expenditure, you know, high pension expenditure, aging population, unemployment, which is, you know, more worrying in Italy than in the rest of Europe right now, uh, the lack of skills uh, or, or, or the need to reskill and upskill a lot of workforce. So the labor market is not going very well. And we have a lot of pensions are super expensive. They all say different things, but one thing in common is that, that you need to uh, go ahead with the RRP implementation. And why is that? Because the RRP, as, a, as we were saying at the beginning, contains a lot of reforms, but not just for the sake of, 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 of it. It's not just that you do the justice reform because you want, you want to do it or the public procurement reform or the competition law one. It's because all these reforms put together, they increase the business or they improve the business environment and they, and they, and they you attract more investment. So it's not just that you're injecting a lot of money. So it's more than 200 if you combine the Italian plan plus the complementary fund. And plus then you have also the cohesion funds, the cohesion policy, sorry, um, which is a lot, a lot of money coming in between until 2027. Uh, it's not only that money that you are injecting, which is, which is also good, but it's the positive spillover, which are not quantifiable uh, in terms of attracting investments. So if you are actually able to improve the business environment and you know that companies will know at least that if you want to do business in Italy, you have legal certainty, that you have faster public administration. Oh, sorry, I didn't mention the reform of the public administration, which is the big, big ticket reform in the plan. And you have all this you will get much better results than just the money, which is already pretty high. So, um, and, and, and it is where we, where I think this is where all these comments come from uh, when they focus on RRP implementation. So the investments, yes, but uh, keep their home. So my tip to to you, I mean, to whoever, you know, look at, at, at looks at Italy is of course, look, looking at the number is always a great thing to do, but here more than ever, you need to look on whether the government is able to um, to stick to the reform agenda because that's already an indicator of whether or not growth will be will be enough to to offset uh, to offset the other bad uh, bad numbers that, that that we have. And there again, because because growth has always been indicated as as cure to reduce uh, to reduce this number in, into a downward um, uh, debt reduction uh, path uh, over the next uh, at least a couple of years and probably longer. Um, so yeah, it, it, it becomes less technical, probably from your point of view, a bit more political, but it's already an indicator when you see that there is a delay, not so much in the expenditure, but in the reform agenda, then that's, that's an alarm, uh, or at least an alert that you, sh you should put in your, in your system to say, okay, things could, could get worse in, in, in the future. Okay, well, thank you, Robbie. Super insightful. Actually, uh, in brief, we, we, we see Italy coming, you know, from, from the past with a big baggage, including debt or debt to GDP and inefficiencies. It has been doing that better than expected in the past couple of years, better 2021 with the rebounds. Uh, the future is challenging. Growth will be the cure. And it's beautiful to understand and perceive from what you're saying that actually Europe 
is and is going to be the partner for Italy, not only to give the money, but also to prepare for that future growth, which is something that the public doesn't necessarily perceive. So thank you for that. If we can zoom out from Italy, which is a beautiful point of view, Europe, economics, what is your point of view? Future growth, what is going on in the medium term? The European Central, Central Bank in May will soon, I think, hike interest rates. The market is debating between 25 or 50 basis points right now, but core inflation is still high. So the environment is an environment of short-term recovery, energy prices going down, but we don't know what is going to happen in the medium term. What, what's your take on Europe? Okay, let's, let, let me start first. Let, uh, this is an interesting time to make this interview because it's very timely. I mean, we have the IMF, I think, releasing the, you know this better than I do. I think uh, the IMF is releasing the regional outlook on Europe in a couple of days at the end of this week. And then more interesting, at least from my point of view, you have the European Commission issuing the spring package and, um, uh, and where you have the in-depth reviews of the countries in, in excessive imbalances as Italy. Greece and others. And it's super important because there you will also see the country-specific recommendations, what Brussels you know, says about, uh, about all this. And as we speak, I think, or at least one hour after we speak, um, there will be some news from the Commission in terms of the European uh, Economic Governance Review. All these things, you, know, you, should, you should see them together. So I think this is an interesting time because you, you will get more you know, insights from um, from the Commission um, in the next uh, two to three weeks. So May would be a crucial month, as usual, but uh, even more so than, than, than previous years. Uh, well, the IMF was saying that he, we need uh, Europe faces, you know, at least this was my sense of, of, the, of, the, press, of the press conference, that you need to defeat inflation, uh, which is in double digits in some emerging economies uh, in Europe, uh, but not only those. Um, you have to sustain recovery. Okay, uh, there again, I'm biased, so I, I agree. Um, and, and you have to find a safeguard, uh, you know, uh, fiscal sustainability. And and, uh, and and this again is more or less, I think, in line with what the Commission says. Uh, but overall, I mean, again, Europe, as, as I was saying earlier, Europe entered 2023 on a healthier footing than everybody expected. Uh, the benchmark gas prices went down to pre-pandemic level. Not quite sure whether this is being passed on uh, to to consumers, uh, but this is what we hope. And here I'm, you know, wearing again the competition lawyer hat. But uh, this is what Europe expects to happen at some point. Um, and the economic sentiment has been really good. I mean, comparing to what we forecasted last year. And, uh, and, and I think demand is also quite strong. I mean, there are some issues in, in, in manufacturing, which, which is a bit weak, but surprisingly, uh, we haven't seen a big effect on the labor market, which differently from Italy uh, is pretty strong. And unemployment is, I think, at, at very low levels. It was at the end of 2022, and, and uh, you, you have better you know, data than I have, but I think it still is. So um, I think the combination of this thing, particularly, uh, you know, the economic sentiment will kind of offset the potential impact of, of, of inflation and will uh, avoid most likely, hopefully, uh, to, to get into a recession, even if narrowly so, but still out of, um, of, of an actual uh, um, um, a recession. I mean, it's funny though, because if you have 
one quarter with minus n, uh, everybody is okay. But then if you have two quarters with minus 0.1%, it's recession. Okay, but uh, uh, there it's it's a. Uh, uh, this is your job um, to, uh, you know, to make sense out of this. Uh, so I think Europe is doing well. And um, what's important is what is going, you know, what's going to happen next with the uh, deactivation of the general uh, escape clause of the Stability and Growth Pact. Where what, what does it mean that then the old, you know, hated uh, two rules of the three percent of the deficit to GDP and sixty percent of the debt to GDP ratio will kick in again. And this is why you know countries like Greece and, and Italy and, and Portugal and possibly Spain, although Spain has, has been doing very well, you know this better than I do. Uh, you know even smaller ones, Cyprus. I mean, oh, they, they have they they you know they've been having you know imbalances issues and they will be put on, on the spotlight. But but more generally, this is where you will see what Europe can do in terms of keeping the member states together. Because, because these two parameters will stay. What will change is how you address the issue if you have one. Uh, so how you frame the debt reduction pact. It's not gonna be like a super aggressive, you know, uh, imposition by Brussels into the member states, but it's gonna be something, uh, I guess, more negotiated and where the member states will have more ownership on how to reduce debt. Um, this is great news because this is the, the great departure from, from the past. And, and hopefully will allow us to get out of these oaks versus dogs uh, debate, which is not interesting at all. Um, you plan how to reduce that and, uh, and then you enforce it. And, and of course, that reduction means, again, reforms and uh, a bit of an investment. But one thing that I would expect from, from the Commission is to say out loud, uh, as it is already done in March with the fiscal guidance, to you know, be very careful in keeping on with these uh, expansionary measures. So far, I mean, I think the member states have done the right thing to support households and businesses, you know, take Germany, but not only Germany, because that's, you know, the most famous example, but even Italy uh, with, with several aid decrees, if you add them up, it's a lot of expenditure to to kind of offset the, the energy crisis and, and not only the energy crisis, but, you know, the, the effects of, of decreasing raw materials and effects on, on, on households. And we, I mean, the, the member, member states, not only this one, but, but all the members cannot keep doing that. They need to be more selective. So I don't think the commission will be saying, you know, be super uh, conservative, uh, but be more targeted. Uh, yes. Um, and, and so um, you cannot just adopt catch-all provisions and, and just put money there uh, as, as we did uh, in 2022 uh, after the war started. Um, so this is an advice that is probably is coming as, as fiscal guidance to all the member states. It makes a lot of sense. It's coherent with the medium-term um, debt reduction plan that some countries will have to adopt following the new, the new governance. We'll see what, what comes up. But in terms of forecast, um, uh, it would, you just have to wait a couple of, of, of weeks. You know, let, let, let me just say one thing about inflation. Um, and we are mapping not to be a lawyer, not to be an economist and, and kind of, um, you know, uh, so I'm not too stressed about the future only, but I can linger on the past a little bit. And if you look at Europe, I mean, you have to keep in mind, and over the past four years, there were two um, revolutionary events, I think. One, and both of them are positive, but the first one is, it's easier to understand. The first one is the next gen EU, where the RP, the recovery and resilience uh, plan is, uh, the, the facility is. Um, it's a huge amount of money. It's revolutionary because for the first time you have 
Europe actually going out on the market, borrowing money to and, and give and, and give support to the member states. Uh, and if you look at the timing, it's also amazing. And trust me when I say this, the fastest reaction that I've ever seen by the Commission. So you have the you know pandemic kicking in in December 2020. You have the own resource decision, and February 21 the RF regulation. And by April 2021, most of the member states presenting their recovery and resilience plan is fast in European terms, and it, it was a quick reaction. It's a huge amount of money, and and it get it got out of this austerity, uh, uh, you know, debate. And and there again, the debate ox versus dogs. I mean, it was it was a unanimous decision to to say we need to support member states in this period, and the the way. Brussels reacted was amazing, and, and, and this is why I think there is a trust in, in the European institution uh, now uh, high, higher than ever before. So uh, this is the first revolutionary thing. But the second one, which is probably um, kind of, uh, you know, you know considered not too important for, 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 for analysts, is that even before that, there was the decision to adopt uh, the first real industrial policy in Europe, right? um, and this was pre-pandemic. Industrial policy is based on, on two things. One is the, the, the digital transition, which for me is tautological because of course, you're just you know, taking into account what's happening around the world and you need to do anyway. So that wasn't that revolutionary, but the second one, yes, and that's the green transition or the green deal or the 5455 or whatever you wanna call it, that, that stuff in 2019. And I think we all knew at the time that this was gonna be uh, really costly. Uh, costly not in terms of economics for the member state, but also in terms of relationship. It was, uh, I think, Brussels' own uh, polite, respectful, elegant, um, uh, and institutional manner of declaring war to the world, to some extent, to use an aggressive language, uh, that is, we're going to fight climate change no matter what. Uh, we don't care about China, we don't care about the US, the previous administration, at least. Uh, we are just going to do it, and we're going to set ourselves uh, very under a very uh, ambitious uh, uh, path and, and deadlines, and and we're going to you know uh, defeat uh, you know the, the, the climate change, and we're going to be carbon neutral uh, in a short time, really short time. This was going to be costly. We knew it already, costly for the member states. But then the pandemic kicked in, and then after that the war kicked in. So you have a combination of these things and everything now is mixed up. And inflation that is coming out of all of this, the rebound from the pandemic, the increase in consumption, the increase in raw materials, the interest rates going up, um, is all mixed up. Um, but to me, and I, don't, I couldn't find any reliable source or analysis about this, we need to distinguish what are, and I use you know, the, the term improperly, the objective improperly, uh, the exogenous, uh, you know, reasons for inflation from our policy, our own policy decisions. Because at some point, what I'm trying to say is that we would have seen some of, of this increase uh, um, in, in prices anyway, uh, translated indirectly from the policy choices that we made already back in, in, in 2019. And don't get me wrong, I'm super proud of, of what Europe is doing with, 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 the, with the Green Deal. I think it was a bold move. Uh, I guess everybody else, uh, but we know that this is going to have, you know, a cost in terms of relationship with the rest of the world, the carbon leakages uh, um, uh, relationship with the other countries, uh, and in turn the cost of sustaining the transition, uh, which is the, the, the most visible one, um, it was going to impact us anyway. 
So is this interesting for you? Uh, probably not because inflation is inflation, uh, whether it's exogenous or endogenous, we don't care uh, unless unless uh, you want to you know uh, bitch about um, at the central banks or unless you're you know, Paul Krugman or both. Uh, uh, but but uh, but, uh, but 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 yeah, but in planning how to get out of of this, uh, how to get out of 2023 and and enter 2024 in a more uh, prudent manner, I think you, it still makes sense to try to see what is that is coming and is going to stay uh, and what is hopefully going to, to fade away in, in, in the following 12 months, because now everybody says, okay, inflation will, will decrease by the end of probably 2024, so even 2025 we'll all be happy. Yes, but uh, again, uh, the policy choices we made uh, need to be taken into account in terms of costs for member states, which in turn will have an impact on, on, on public expenditure and, and these parameters I was referring to. Okay, thank you for this. I, I, my, my comment would be that there's, you know, inflation can be good as well. It's not only bad, especially when policy choices or spending will generate future growth or will fix problems in the future. It becomes bad when it's vicious and it grows, and so we'll invite people to spend less in the future. But I think, you know, good if Europe had and has a plan to fix some issues, including climate change with some spending, and that will make inflation emerge. Uh, what I think is great to hear, and that people normally wouldn't have the opportunity to hear, is that the European Union in general is a big partner sometimes it's perceived like, you know, a ruler enforcing things is a big partner in terms of allowing fiscal flexibility, as you mentioned earlier, but within a framework of fiscal stability. So governments spend money, but don't spend it. I mean, be more focused, be more targeted. Great if it wants to pursue, you know, things which are good for the planet, you know, despite other administrations being flexible. And so it's very interesting to get this perspective as partner instead of, of, of enemy, you know, of, of member states. And so, you know, thank you for shedding the light on that. I would move on at, at this point, uh, you know, somehow from the super ins insightful perspective on Italy and Europe towards a bit on what you do as an individual. We'll get into the deeply personal, you know, deeply personal level later on in, in a few minutes. But as this podcast is about economics and growth, but also investing and, you know, the markets, you know, or at least we markets have very short term focus and is about gro gro growth today, what equities or stocks do. You have a lot of knowledge. You have this institutional perspective using public information, of course, but how do you approach investing, you personally? Because we're part of the audience being very professional investors and half looking for guidance. Is it easy for you? Do you exactly know what to do? Where do you invest? Whatever you want to share with us. That's, that's an easy, it's a 10 second reply. I don't invest. Um, <laughs> okay. No, I mean, I invest only in equities. Uh, this is what I used to do um, and what I used to do pre-pandemic and during the pandemic, um, where the markets, by the way, were going relatively well. Uh, but of course, I'm not the happiest person lately. Uh, now the markets are going um, uh, as, as probably I'm too exposed. And, and, and the first page of uh, finance for dummies, I haven't read, evidently, if you look at my portfolio, which is diversified, diversified. Um, but yes, uh, no. Uh, 
I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm cautious right now because, again, I've, I've been exposed a lot. Uh, I am so much interested in the microeconomics dynamics right now that, uh, um, that, that, that I'm not following too closely the, the financial markets, but, but this is where I, re I would rely on monetaria. <laughs> so I would rely more, more, more of you. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, let me say this because you summarize it very well. I mean, this is a very uh, topical moment, I think, where, where, where we are, where we'll see a change in policy by, by the US and, and, and Europe for sure. Uh, just, if you think just the economic governance itself, it, it's a major turn. Um, and then we need to wait how the relationship with Russia and the rest of the world will play out. So, uh, making sense of this, uh, it's really for specialists. So this is where I think uh, amateurs like myself should stay out of making own decisions um, without, you know, consulting with, with you, with, with the experts, because it's really, really difficult. I mean, if uh, my perception is that you would expect the market to go very bad and they're still relatively okay. But so the moment in which they will start really going to shit is just being postponed. Uh, so we expected 2022, and then it's almost becoming 2023, and most likely not even so. Uh, it's going to be 2024. So um, there again, uh, I mean, it, it, I, I, I'm confused, uh, and this is where I'm, I'm, I'm frozen, and I'm, I'm not doing anything. But um, I, to some extent, you know, um, envy, but also uh, I really, really appreciate uh, and value what what you guys are doing because it's amazing to, you know trying to put everything in, in order and trying to make a sensible uh, forecast of what's going to happen because of course you make investments you know based on, on, on projections so um, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm on old and, uh, and and I will be in this status until until uh, you know things get better uh, but in the meantime I this is you know free advertising go to Nico and ask him. Thank you wasn't prepared I swear no not at all yes, not yes, at all. But no, thanks for sharing your perspective. I mean, there are no right or wrong ways. You can invest the tactical in the short term, in the long term. You can go focused, concentrated, or diversified. It's great to have a perspective. You know, I, I often have these debates even with other investment professionals. It tends to be very complex to know what to buy at what good price where and many times we have fear of recessions recessions are not showing up but the markets become more and more expensive and you wait and you lose ground and when you buy maybe markets will go down it's really really complex also for the professionals monetario we're trying to put together this engine trying to see everything and make decisions but you know thank you it is great to know what people tend to do or the issues that typically have including not knowing not having time or freezing because at the end this is hard for everyone so, so I think people you. are getting sucked in in the great or the decent uh, offering of, of bonds and uh, and uh, you know the, 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 the there is a tendency at least what I can see is that they say okay this is the right moment to just uh, uh, fill our portfolio with uh, with, with with BTPs and and. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Italian BTP, I mean, the 10-year Italian BTP, I think a couple of weeks ago was was uh, quite some some points below what it was in October. Uh, and, and then you get, you know, latest news and you keep getting a great, great, uh, great interest. Um, uh, my humble uh, opinion is that be careful because, I mean, um, 
again, I mean, I would see what we what we have to what, what's going to be the new world in 2024. This is still a pre pretty peculiar year where you have the SGP suspended and um, and and we still don't know exactly what's going to happen with inflation. As a, so, um, I mean, this this you know uh, race to buy bonds, I don't quite understand. I mean, I, I think the normal rules apply to be balanced anyway. But okay, that's just my take. As you know, BTPs pay depending on maturities, you know, above three to four percent is very compelling, but you have an element of risk and there is inflation. And so the idea is that bonds, even when they pay you well, in case of recession, they can defend depending on which country issues bonds, depends on the outlook of investors on Italy specifically. They can work well, but they can they can be problematic as well in case of persistent inflation, for example. And so you say it well. Okay, well, thank you. Let me ask you. As we get to the end of the podcast, we have been at the institutional level, super interesting, asking you about your personal investments. Now, the podcast is about productive time of individuals looking at markets or economics, but individuals also have free time. And so we love asking one last question at the end of the interviews, which goes into the free time and the passion of some of us, wines. Okay, so okay. from the office for a moment, from... for a moment, I was afraid you would ask you about Juventus, but likely it's fine. Okay, we did put both to interesting to to do you know, No, 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 don't, don't go there. But you know, in your free time, Robbie. So when you leave the European Union and it's been a busy week, uh, if you don't work in the weekends and you have time to open a bottle of wine, what is your choice? You stay in Italy, you go elsewhere. Both, what do you like? always have time to open a bottle, particularly when I'm working for the European Union, and this message would auto-destroy in a few seconds. Uh, no, okay, no, let, let, me, let me say at the outset, I mean, I'm not, you know this, but uh, I'm not a, a wine expert. I, I cannot recognize an excellent wine over, uh, uh, you know, 100 one spectator points bottle, um, but I can equally confidently say that uh, I, I can place myself in the elite group where you are, most likely, that is the top 5% per, of per capita consumption um, <laughs> of wine. So that gives me a lot of exposure, I guess. And um, no, I mean, uh, it's, it's uh, the, 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 in the story of this year is that, so uh, I, I, I bought uh, quite some, some you know, nice, bottles but but the idea was to buy a lot of bottles from 2019 uh the reason being that uh there was the year when my son was born and, and my dad did the same for me with the idea of you know having a bunch of bottles to keep them for 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 years and then 30 40 years later you know open them up now in my case i had the pleasure of and and, and the, you know uh the the, the luxury of, of opening them with my dad but I'm not sure I'll be there in 30, 40 years, but at least my son will, will be able to open these nice bottles maybe in a lot of time from now and, and see how, how they are. But the point is that, so I, I bought some of them, particularly there is one that I like that is the Grattamacco, is a Bulgari. Uh, whenever I don't know what to do, I always go with Super Toscan. So Anelaya, <laughs> Sassicaia, you know, Tignanello, but particularly the Bulgari and the Castagneto Carducci area, I think that's the, it's a blessed area. Uh, and, and this is after the Cana's wedding miracle of, of Jesus, I think the other thing was creating the, the Bulgari area. Um, and um, so I always go there when I'm in doubt. So I bought this a bunch of, of uh, Bulgari um, 2019 without really knowing. I just 
the year was was the main the, the main uh, guiding principle, uh, and, and, and put them uh, put them away. And then at some point I asked myself, but should I? I mean, should I try at least one? Because I mean, is this is this something that's supposed to age for forty years? So I, I tried one. It was six bottles, uh, and then I ended up drinking them all, not in one night, in, in three nights actually. But but it was so good. And then I realized that it's like a you know super award-winning wine with you know ninety-six wine spectator points, Robert Parker, Jim Sackley, you know all these people. You know, it's just a fantastic wine. But this I didn't know, so I now I have to buy them again. Um, so yes, I do open every once in a while a bunch of, of bottles. Okay, sorry, Robbie. I think we we finished with the forty minutes free Zoom call as Monetary is on a budget, and we were the commission as well. <laughs> so. I, I think you said you didn't know about wine, but Bulgaria is a wonderful region in Tuscany. Gratamaco is fantastic. And so actually you bought and you tested and you knew they were very good wines. You had to buy them again. Not a, you know, Great. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not the end of you know, the sure. world. I mean, quite happy. But uh, yeah, no, this is to say that, you know, it's not that I did so on purpose. It, it happened by coincidence. But there are so Bulgaria for me is always a win-win. Uh, it's, it's an easy win. But then the other... Uh, you know, wine that I love is Barbaresco. This year I've, I've tried many. Uh, trying to get out of, of Gaia, not only because it's the most expensive thing I've ever seen, it's always a nice present if you want to, you know, give me a, you know, a bottle of Barbaresco from Gaia, you know, happy to receive it. But there are plenty of other producers, Michele Chiarlo, uh, Cortese is, is another one. The, my favorite is Rizzi, which is a relatively small producer. It has a great Barbaresco at a decent price. The most famous, Pio Cesare. Uh, you, have, uh, you have Bruno Giacosa. You have all these people. They do amazing Barbarescos. And as much as I don't have a good relationship with Barolo, um, we don't like each other for some reasons. Uh, it always get, get, gets me in trouble. Um, probably not sophisticated enough, uh, but I do love Barbaresco. And all these uh, producers are, are just great. Just pick up any of them. Take a Ritzy one if you find it. It's just, you, you, you won't go wrong with, with that. But the region, well, the, the sub-region that I love the most um, is, uh, is, is the south of Toscany uh, is the southern part of Marema because Bulgaria is already there. But if you go southern than that um, and closer to Lazio, you have, you have the Marema area, the southern Marema. And there, basically, you, you still go, you go back to the you know old traditional Toscan way of doing. So you're out of the super Toscans. You have the classic Sangiovese, 85, 90%, 95% or, or 100, um, but it's closer to the sea. So you have these, these fantastic wines, which are much rower, uh, rougher, and unsophisticated, more unsophisticated, clearly, than, than Castagneto Carducci or any good Chianti or Brunello. Uh, really not, not comparable, but much you know, more straightforward, honest, and, and direct, uh, and with, with hypertrophic tannins, which will basically dry you out of everything, of every liquid you have in, in your body. You know, I love it. the most famous one is Morellino, but um, from that area. And whenever I want to feel home, although I'm not from there originally, but whenever I want to feel home, I just drink something from there. And even the whites, the the Vermentino, not comparable to the Sardinians Vermentino, but still very hot, very honest. And in abs absolute, that's the, the region that I love the most. And uh, you know, I have plenty of, of of wines from there. And and um, I, you know. 
this being in the top five percent, which I'm particularly proud of, uh, I you know I think you know for me it, it would lend me right few steps away from alcoholism, but according to my wife, many steps after. Um, I still <laughs> argue that's objective, but okay. Um, yeah, I, I do have some uh, you know some spare bottles in case of emergency. Let's say. Oh, very well, well done and well said. So there's Morellino di Scanzano, and the rest is under the Maremma generic label. No, EGPs or. Yeah, when, when they get out of, of the rules, you know, so I think uh, there is a specific 85% or 90% of Sangiovese, then you have, you can play with the remaining, and, and that's still Morellino if, if it's in the area. But you have then a lot of other, you know, uh, experiments which are extremely nice, and then they call them, uh, you know, however they want. Uh, but when, once they get below the, you know, the rules for the, for the Morellino, uh, below 85%, I think uh, you, you, you cannot call it that way. Um, so, but there is plenty of stuff. There is a lot of mixed mixture with Merlot, with Cabernet, and these kind of things. So, getting a bit closer to super Toscans, but not as sophisticated and, and nice as, as and costly as as the the big wines. But you you start seeing a bit of experiments experiments there. But even the white, I mean, the white wasn't there. Well, it was there, you know, 20 years ago, and it was awful. I mean, now they improved it a lot, you know, by experimenting, by, you know, getting advice from, you know, the most experienced wine producers. Um, and, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, when we were trying to find a place where to get married, I mean, we, as cliche as it sounds, we wanted to find, a, 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 you know, a winemaker and, and, and rent a place or be in the middle of wine yards. Very cliche, I understand, but it, it reflects me, I guess. Um, so we started, you know, traveling around Central Italy, the Maremma in particular, but, but not only those. So we have seen more than 40 places. Even one, once we found a place, we kept doing it because, because it was so nice. So we started talking to, to the people, you know, to, the, to the wine producers. And I've realized the one thing that makes a region or a subset of a region or, or, or even a particular wine special is really the pain and suffering around it. Uh, or, or the imperfections. These I can recognize in the wine. So if the harvest was particularly problematic, you know, weather shocks, uh, too much sun, too much rain, uh, the slope is difficult. You have to pick up the grapes one by one by hand or all these kind of things. Um, you can actually feel that in the wine and Maremma is one area where you immediately feel that because it's more straight while in other wines where you have more complexity you have to find it behind a lot of other stuff uh, so this is why I you know I, I tend to to like the, a, a bit of the easiest wine comparing to you know the most famous uh, brands and and, and, and and typical you know uh, famous famous, uh, famous wine but uh, there are plenty of regions like that but even international you know when you when you see small, a small producer putting all the work in one immediately you recognize that I, I know you relate to that as well yeah but this is a romantic observation but it's very true i also think that the beauty around the, the wine manufacturing is that you can travel from your chair you can travel the world you can taste the flavor of nature with the grapes but also what the weather has been and also the human efforts to produce that and this is what you 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 talk about okay thank you very much so focus on italy tuscany beautiful polished and less polished products one parenthesis we tried some very good spanish wines together as well which will be the new frontier to try for the next few times and so you know we'll talk about this other times but i would say Robbie, it has been super insightful interesting a pleasure
Thank you for your time. I think it has been very interesting for the audience as well. And and uh, we'll stay in touch, of course. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We should do this more often. But thanks for having me, Nico. And uh, yeah, uh, let's let's be in touch. And and to everybody who's listening, uh, just follow Monetary. Thank you. Thank you very much for the time.